0: What she said Episode 1690 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast with Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We are recording on Wednesday evening, Eastern Time, a little later than we had planned, because we were watching a baseball game that was taking place in Seattle, and Let me read you the headline right now on Mariners.com. Tell me whether you think this captures the main story of the game. Here's the headline. Kikuchi Sharp in Finale. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That that tells you all you need to know, right?
1: I mean, he was sharp. (laughs) He was. (laughs) That is not an inaccurate uh, headline, but uh, as you you were hinting, uh, perhaps incomplete (laughs) one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, there was someone who was slightly sharper, in fact, so Just the Mariners buried the lead there, and you can understand why the poor Mariners, they've been on the wrong end of many a no-hitter in my memory, but this is the latest. So John Means and the Orioles shut down the Mariners on Wednesday. Means was fantastic. Some might even say perfect. <laughs> he was he was very close to perfect. We could talk about that. Technically, this was a no-hitter, and John Means was brilliant. This is the third no-hitter of the season. Probably not the last, as we have said, because the league is batting 234 as we speak. But Means, nine innings, no walks, no hits, no errors, <laughs> which is odd in a no-hitter. That is not a perfect game. Twelve strikeouts. This was a career-high number of Ks for him. And this was, I'm reading a a tweet here from our Orioles season preview guest, Joe Trezza, who is citing the Elias Sports Bureau. John Means today threw the first non-perfect no-hitter in which the opposing team did not record a walk, hit by pitch, or error. So it's the first in which the only base runner reached on a dropped third strike. Only a dropped third strike standing between John Means and perfection.
1: I know that there are people who like this rule. I know that we've talked about those people. I know that we read from Sam's piece, which I still think is the best and sort of most concise articulation of why I think that this rule is garbage, but I just Mm want to reiterate, I think this rule is garbage. Me too. (laughs) And look, I think that it is important for the purposes of us all agreeing on a consistent reality (laughs) that we adhere to definitions as they are presented. And so I accept that this was not a perfect game because Mm -hmm. my understanding is that we think of a perfect game as one in which... A No base runners reach base at all. There are no base runners on the base, and we are used to perfect games becoming no hitters as a result of walks or hit by pitch or an error, right? That's what we kind of understand no hitters Mm -hmm. to be in reference to perfect games. But I'm here to say that this is another example of why this rule is garbage. And yeah. one thing I'm a little nervous about, as you noted, we waited to record because we were watching this game and we wanted to see sort of what the results ended up being. And this would have been a sparkling performance for Means regardless. At some point, we're going to have to like do an ode to... To John Means's changeup because it is quite a delightful pitch. Mm -hmm. But I was watching, and you know, there's this strange dynamic that goes on in the course of a no hitter or a perfect game where the pitcher doesn't really talk to very many people. You know, they don't want to get him out of his rhythm. And I'm sure that it got resolved very quickly if it was an issue. But do we know for sure that John Means knew that he was throwing a no hitter and not a perfect game (laughs) when the game concluded? I don't know if we know that he seemed, I mean, he would be very happy regardless. And I don't know John means, so I cannot reliably differentiate between like perfecto happy and no hitter happy. Those are both elevated states of happy, but I'm a little worried. Like 10% of me is worried that he, until he got Like in the scrum or maybe until he got out of the scrum and was preparing to talk to a reporter after the game that he did not know that he did not throw a perfect (laughs) I'm a little worried about it like 10%
0: yeah, I wouldn't blame him. If he had checked the MLB app during the game, he would have been misled because <laughs> both the MLB app and MLB.com, right up until the very end or or just about the very end, said perfect game. When a, a no-hitter or a perfect game is in progress on the website or the app, it shows a little message telling people that, and it said perfect game long after that runner reached via the drop third strike. So clearly the programmers of you know whatever logic controls that on the app and the website did not take into account that there could be a, a no hitter where the only base runner who reached would be on a dropped third strike so when i initially tuned in i thought i was tuning in to watch a perfect game and then i was informed by the broadcasters that in fact it was a no hitter so like you, I agree, we agree on the rules beforehand, and we understand that a perfect game means no base runners, but that does not mean we have to be happy about the fact that this rule is on the books, and we've objected to it before. And. I get it. It's not quite perfect. Although, in this case, the runner who reached was caught stealing. So (laughs) that runner was erased and Means did, in fact, face the minimum, making it even more flawless and weird that it wasn't a perfect game. I'm getting
1: agitated all over again.
0: Yeah, I know, really. But it was a great performance regardless.
1: Regardless.
0: Means is, is great. Like, we extolled his virtues recently when he stopped the Oakland A's winning streak, and yes. he's just easy to root for, sort of a data-driven player development success story, late bloomer, mid-round drafty. Wasn't a lot expected of him, and he has kind of remade himself and changed his pitch mix and picked up new pitches and added velocity and turned himself into a, a legitimately very good starter. And it's been fun to watch. And on this day, he threw 113 pitches, 79 strikes. He threw first pitch strikes to 26 of the 27 batters he faced, which is pretty impressive. And this game went fast. It was two hours and 25 minutes, even though the Orioles scored six runs. So he was working at a nice brisk pace and he just looked great. Yeah, if
1: you, if you look at our leaderboards and I just did the full season split, so this does not take into account today. But, you know, if you, if you look at our pitch value tab on the leaderboards and you are looking at the sort of value of a particular changeup for a pitcher, right? And so here I'm looking at weighted changeup runs per 100 pitches. And Means' changeup is the sixth best changeup in baseball and the second best changeup thrown by a left-handed hitter. And so he's just... It's just fun, you know? It's just like a cool mix of things. I think that there's something, if we want to to lean into embracing a narrative to help us make sense of the world around us, like there's something charming and sort of cool about a guy like him succeeding and throwing a no-hitter, but even just being himself, because for such a long time, like the knock on Baltimore was that they could not develop pitchers to save their lives, and their approach to it was backward and not data-driven, and guys would leave, and they would be Jake Arrieta, And then we would say, ah, Baltimore. And we'd kind of, you know, cry in Old Bay and feel badly about it. And then there's means. And so it's, I think that if I were an Orioles fan, I would, I would. be forgiven for looking at him as sort of a not only a great pitcher in his own right and a fun guy to watch on a team that is still trying to find its way through its rebuild but sort of emblematic of the the change in direction and focus within the organization and so it's a, it's a cool thing like a no hitter is cool like on mm-hmm. its own it's cool for a guy like means to be one to throw it is really cool for him to throw it given who he is and the org that he's from I think it's just a really powerful combination of things and we like narrative because we're, we're writers and podcast and narrative makes um, what we do more interesting and at yeah. least more cohesive. So, a very cool thing. One I'm glad we uh, delayed for so that we could talk about because John okay. means. <laughs>
0: yeah. And if this leads to more discussion of the drop third strike rule and maybe more people up in arms about that, I would not be upset about that either. <laughs> so. I understand
1: why people, I understand the justification that is given here, right? That the rationale comes from this idea that the defense has to make a proper fielding play to record an out. I understand that. But as Sam said, like, there are just so many exceptions to that. And mm-hmm. we we allow for those. And some of them, I think, are far Further afield, not in a literal sense, but in sort of a metaphorical sense from the act of pitching and sort of the most reliable way to record outs. And we accept that those are going we accept those exceptions. But we don't we don't look at this and say, the pitcher did he did his job. He yeah. did his business. I don't I don't care for it. But no. I think that John Means is probably really happy. Although again, probably maybe slightly let down because I'm not totally convinced he didn't know he hadn't thrown a perfect game. Yeah, maybe like, would you tell him if you were the if you were the pitching coach? I don't know the name of the Orioles pitching coach, but if you were Bob, the Orioles pitching coach, I could look it up. <laughs> but why why delay the pod for a second? If you were Bob, the Orioles pitching coach, would you tell John Means like, hey man, I just want you to know that like, due to a weird rule that like is kind of divisive in certain corners of the internet, you're not technically throwing a perfect game right now. You are throwing a no hitter. I mean, it's possible that this was like on you know, a screen somewhere within T-Mobile. It's, you Mm -hmm. know, there could have been other clues sort of given, but... I don't know. They really, they sure celebrated like they maybe thought that was a perfect game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Do you want to alleviate the pressure on him or do you want to give him that competitive edge where he wants to finish it off? I I guess I probably would not want to distract him at all. (laughs) Like you're not even supposed to talk to the pitcher during the no-hitter attempt, Right. right? Which is sort of silly. That's the tradition. I don't know if that was actually observed in this case, but, you know, why give him something to think about that is not finishing off this start and why make him upset about it potentially you know what if he's angry about the drop third strike rule and suddenly that distracts him from the attempt to to finish this off so no i probably would not break that to him until after the start
1: yeah, I mean that's probably the safest thing, but you're you're putting a lot on his ability to maintain his composure. It probably said on the scoreboard at T-Mobile and I just wasn't able to tell from the broadcast angle that like, oh, this is a, a no hitter, congratulations. I did appreciate mm-hmm. I was watching the the Mariners broadcast of this game, not the Orioles broadcast just cuz you know, you you get you get used to things. It's like comfortable socks. And uh I really liked how nice they were about John Means on the broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> it made yeah, me were. really it was just nice. It just was a nice thing. I don't know. It's just nice when people are kind. So anyway, it was yeah. it was like, ah, he did a cool thing and we all get to be excited about it. I'm watching him react and I think he thought this was a perfect game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's hard to tell the difference between the no hitter sure, reaction again, and the perfect game reaction <laughs>
1: Right, I don't know him those are both elevated states of joy who knows mm-hmm. what they look like it's very exciting regardless like he gets to you know he gets to feel happy and uh, be you know he'll remember this day forever and I, I doubt his experience of it will be diminished in any kind of a lasting way if he temporarily thought he threw a perfecto but did Mm -hmm. not although I stand by my take that the Mariners will not make the postseason again until someone other than Felix has like the the most recent perfect game so (laughs) maybe Seattle should have advocated for a change in the scoring decision I don't know I'm just saying
0: Well, he's on a short list of starts this good. Baseball reference just tweeted a list of eight starts or eight pitchers who have had games with twenty seven outs, twelve or more strikeouts, no hits, no walks. Nap Rucker, Sandy Koufax, Randy Johnson, Matt Cain, Felix Hernandez, Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer, and now John Means. And this is the first Orioles solo no hitter since all the way back. To 1969 when Jim Palmer did it The Orioles have never had a perfect game And I guess they still haven't technically And he only allowed one hard hit ball As StatCast defines it 95 miles per hour or more And that ball was a pop-up, so just did not allow a lot of hard contact, although there were some balls with high expected batting averages, so he could have lost it. That's usually the case in no-hitters slash perfect games. So anyway, congrats to John Means and the Orioles, and let's hope that the draft third strike rule is changed someday so that this can be averted in the future.
1: It will never be changed. It will remain with us forever, and uh, and I, I imagine I will make peace with it eventually, but today is not that day.
0: Pitching coach is Chris Holt, by Chris the way. Chris Holt, oh,
1: yes. Chris Holt, that's so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Chris, I just didn't remember. I know some of them, but some of them I forget, and Bob mm-hmm. seemed like a neutral uh, alternative to, to not knowing, so here we are. Sorry, yeah. Chris.
0: <laughs> Definitely, a lot of pitching coaches named Bob. <laughs>
1: yeah, Bob, Robert, Roberto. Like there are a lot of you know, we got a lot of options here. It's a it's a popular name.
0: So before John Means finished off his no hitter. There was a different trending topic on Twitter. Tony La Russa was trending before John Means dislodged him. We talked a little bit about this on our most recent episode about Jeff Passon's report that there's been some grumbling going on in the White Sox clubhouse about Tony La Russa's managerial decisions. And that grumbling perhaps is going to get a little louder after Wednesday's game. So... Tony Arusa did not cover himself in glory in the 10th inning of a game that the White Sox lost to the Reds one to nothing. So what happened here, the headline, the most notable screw-up here, is that he had Liam Hendricks serve as the White Sox zombie runner, which is not great because <laughs> Hendricks is a closer. He is not a runner And this did not have to happen. It turns out that Tony Rusa did not know a rule that was relevant here. So the zombie runner rule, I am quoting here, the runner placed on second base at the start of each half inning will be the player in the batting order immediately preceding that half innings leadoff hitter or pinch runner. And so Larusa thought that that would be Hendricks because he had been double switched in to pitch. And so that was his spot in the batting order. However, the rule continues. If the player in the batting order immediately preceding that half innings leadoff hitter is the pitcher, the runner placed on second base may be the player preceding the pitcher in the batting order. This rule will not be in place for the postseason. So he could have had Jose Abreu serve as the zombie runner, but he did not know (laughs) that that was the rule. And friend of the show, James Fegan, read the rule to him (laughs) after the game. And Tony Russo said, I'm guessing you know the rules better. Now I know. <laughs> so that was one issue and then also in that inning so you have the zombie runner on to start the inning and then Yasmani Grandal walks and as a listener just pointed out to us via email brendan wrote in to draw our attention to yasmani grandal's line which is really something he currently is batting 121 with a 363 on base percentage and a 259 slugging and that all comes out to a 100 wrc plus so your typical league average hitter with a 121 batting average and a 363 on base (sighs) thanks to a 27.2 percent walk rate (laughs) Anyway, he got on base with a walk and then Larry Garcia grounds into a force out. You have first and third with one out. Billy Hamilton comes up and Larusa has Garcia steal second and he said that it was a managerial call for Garcia to steal second there and Larusa said that he would make that call again, but Garcia was thrown out and then Billy Hamilton struck out and the White Sox didn't score and then they lost in the bottom of the inning and that just seems like a strange call too because you have Billy Hamilton up who is probably not going to ground into a double play and you already have the runner on third who can score if he just hits a sacrifice or something which seems like Billy Hamilton would be capable of doing so that was perhaps an odd decision. But it was not a misreading of the rule or just an ignorance of the rule, which was also an issue in this inning. So that just contributes to the perception that Tony Russa is just a little bit out of his depth here. And, you know, it's odd not just that he didn't know the rule, but that no one knew the rule or that— right. No one felt comfortable telling him the rule or whatever communication breakdown happened there. Like, you know, the manager has a lot on his mind, but that's what your bench coach is for. That's what your other coaches are for. That's what even players are for. You know, someone should speak up and know that rule and say something. And I thought it was funny that the opposing manager, David Bell, I'm reading a tweet here from another friend of the show, Trent Rosecrans. David Bell said he knew the rule, quote, the league made it really clear that it was going to be a new rule in spring training. <laughs> so he's just no. totally throwing Tony under the oh, bus here. No. <laughs> so that does not reflect particularly well on Tony.
1: Yeah, and as you say, like, it doesn't reflect well on anyone. It's mm-hmm. not good that... <laughs> I mean, he doesn't strike me as a tyrant. So the the second explanation here is sort of not persuasive to me, but either none of them knew the rule or like no one else on that staff felt sufficiently empowered to be like hey, Tony, we don't have to Right. like we can can just be Jose Abreu like Mm
0: -hmm. he's not
1: fast but that's better than having Liam Hardworks out there yeah but Tony La Russa while he seems old school I don't know that he has a reputation for being like so stifling in his approach that he wouldn't be like oh yeah let me I'm gonna be mad at you because you told me I didn't have to run with a pitcher (laughs) you jerk so it's not the best (laughs) that no one was like oh wait hold on Liam come back a second like just hang out, mm-hmm. cause you're you're not gonna be busy for a minute here. That seems bad. I wonder about about him claiming that Garcia's steal was a managerial call. That's probably true. I did write at one point for Fangraphs about like there being a strategic value of being kind to others, and one of the ways that bosses can manifest that is like standing in front of their people when right. th- their people are about to um, endure criticism, and sort of taking responsibility for behavior that isn't theirs by As a means of deflecting ridicule or shame from others. Now, I wrote that about Mickey Calloway before we knew what we know now. So let's (laughs) let's imagine that it's a manager we all like, Mm -hmm. and a coach who we don't think is a creep. So just again, it's Bob. So Bob is out there, (laughs) and he is saying like, "No, I told I told him to steal. I had that on, and he just was following orders. And you know, stuff happens, and that's that's too bad." And I, again, I think that's probably unlikely. I think that based on what we know of Tony LaRusso, <laughs> he'd probably just call for anything, you know, to do that. But um, But the possibility exists that he's just trying to, like, protect his guy. I don't think that's what happened, but... If you were like, if you're a White Sox fan and you're looking for a reason to be optimistic, you could latch on to that. I don't think that you'd have a lot of good reason for it, but it is an explanation that um, at least makes somebody nice, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't necessarily absolve them of the the greater sin of not knowing that, say, their closer doesn't have to run yeah. in extra innings. So, you know, we'll imagine a hypothetical Bob that it's really a shame because I like that piece, and now mm-hmm. I feel weird reading it.
0: Well, in Larissa's defense the last time he managed, they just played the games, you know, they didn't have a zombie runner, so (laughs) I'm not saying that things are better now, and if this were just some sort of principled stand against the very existence of the zombie runner rule, then I would be more inclined to forgive him. But you know, he is managing under weird Manford Ball rules, so I guess he has to know how they work. (laughs) I'm just
1: (laughs) he does, but I you know, if if we're coming up with counter explanations to explain this behavior, I like very much the idea that he is staging a quiet protest yeah. of a of a situation that he finds to be insulting to the game of baseball and and uh one that undermines the the sort of integrity of the game that he has known for so long that's that's much better, although you know the counter argument to that if you're a, a disgruntled white sox fan right now is that if you play normal extra innings, then he just has longer to manage, so mm-hmm. that might not <laughs> make you feel better, kind of. Yeah you know, kind of a double-edged sword, that one, potentially. Yeah,
0: Yeah, even if he was trying to make a point here, he probably shouldn't have done it at the expense of his team and his closer, so (laughs) no, but it's a weird game that we are watching these days. I'm seeing some people pop up with defenses of the drop third strike rule on Twitter. I don't know. This is going to be a, a discourse, I think, uh, one of those discourses that we so often talk about.
1: Famously love those.
0: Joshian <laughs> tweeted, seeing a lot of hate for the drop third strike rule. The idea is plays have to be completed to get an out. It's a good rule with good exceptions to protect force-based runners.
1: But there are exceptions, Joe.
0: Yeah, there are exceptions. There are, the and there exceptions. are. Yeah. There are a
1: lot of exceptions. There are a great many. There are a great many exceptions. I yeah. think that the, you know, I think that the future of baseball just depends on more people reading Sam. So mm-hmm. that was probably yeah. true to begin with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll link to Sam's famous uh, aside once again. The third strike rule. Yeah. All right, so what else do we have to discuss? Producer Dylan alerted me to a quote that is relevant to something that keeps coming up on this podcast, which is the idea that umpires sometimes make calls without actually seeing the play. And we have talked about whether they should just say it was too close to call or they didn't see it and they should defer to the replay umps. And that is not currently an option. But there was a play on a Salvador Perez single in a Royals game where umpire Angel Hernandez, everyone's favorite ump, oh, signaled an out on Salvador Perez's signal. And here is what Angel Hernandez told pool reporter Alec Lewis, who said, walk us through your recollection of that entire play. And Angel said, our goal was to get the play right. And that's exactly what we did. We talk about this replay is an extension of what we do out there As you saw, I got basically blinded by the outfield scoreboard. The pixels on the lights were as clear as white can be. I was trying to make out what happened out there. The harder I looked, the less I could see. So I was trying to read the players to see what they did with the ball. And I had to come out with the call. I basically guessed on the wrong call. So as soon as I turned around, home plate umpire Edwin Moscoso started walking toward me. We got the crew together and we fixed the problem. And Alex said, so you signaled for an out call as if the outfielder had caught the ball. And Angel Hernandez said, correct. And they ultimately (sighs) changed their mind. They got together and justice was done. But... This is a clear instance of an umpire admitting that he made a call without actually being able to see what happened. And I'm sorry that it's Angel Hernandez in this case, because as soon as you mention Angel Hernandez, everyone says, oh, well, of course, it's the notorious Angel Hernandez. But I'm sure that many an umpire has made this sort of play and this sort of ruling because he is not the only person who would have lost track of something because of something getting in the way. And so he actually admitted it here, which is interesting. But I'm sure that many other umpires, whether they'd admit it or not, have similar situations and all we're saying is that maybe they could just say i didn't see that one
1: (laughs) yeah you can't say you guessed better (laughs) to say you didn't see like even if you did guess even if that's the truth i -hmm. think you have to be conscious of How that undermines the faith that people have in you doing your job in a way that we perceive as like deliberate and fair and not guessing.
0: Not that Angel Hernandez really has much faith to undermine. Yeah, but but like you
1: gotta, you gotta, you gotta fib in that case. It's better in that case, in my opinion, to be dishonest (laughs) in service of preserving our faith in the system and that these rules that we have collectively made up but agreed to adhere to have some sort of rationale that binds them together and makes them sensical. So you got to fib in that case and be like, I had a bug in my eye. I had right. a bug in my eye and so I was like, "Oh, I got to get this bug out of my eye." And then I missed it. And so I was like, "Oh, I got to I got to call everybody over cuz I had a bug in my eye and I didn't see it." You got to lie in that case. Mm-hmm. It's better to lie.
0: Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> it's just relevant to this topic that keeps coming up. There's a real-life example. By the way, which game is is more perfect? Is the John Means no hitter or the Armando Galarraga <laughs> non- Perfect game. Oh. Which one is closer to perfection for you?
1: Oh, that's a really good question.
0: <laughs> are they equally close to I, perfection?
1: No, no, <laughs> I don't think they are. I think Galarraga is closer to perfection. Hmm. Maybe. Hmm. Let me think about why I think that. <laughs> why? What? What is your answer to this question?
0: Galarraga is like according to the rules. He only allowed a base runner because of an umpire screw-up.
1: Right. Right, and- yeah.
0: In this case, like you could say that means a lot of base runner because of a catcher screw up or some combination of the pitch being wild and the catcher not catching it. So, at least like a perfect game and no hitter, like those are kind of team accomplishments in a way. We talk about them as individual accomplishments. We attribute them to the pitcher, but they are yeah. team accomplishments. But the and umpire's
1: so. not on a team. And so. Right,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: I think that Galarraga for me is probably closer because one it was it was an error not of of any of the the players it was an it was an error of judgment on the part of the umpire and like wouldn't happen in today's game in theory right like they'd be able to fix that now yeah
0: Right. Although in the future, if they change the, the trap third strike sure. rule someday, then you could say that maybe retroactively they could make this a perfect game, or at least that it would be one under sure. those rules.
1: Sure. And so I guess in that respect, like within the existing architecture of the game, they are roughly equivalent. But within the the rule structure, like there's nothing about what the fielding team did in Galarraga's perfect game that should have resulted in him losing a perfect game. Mm-hmm. and so i think that that is where the important difference lies for me because you're right i think that no hitters and perfect games are are fundamentally team accomplishments and we talk about them as being the sort of province of pitchers but Every single no hitter and perfect game has, you know, a play where you're like, ah, oh, that that's the one that that, that like mm-hmm. made the difference. And it's funny that we even talk about it that way because technically, like, they all made a difference, right? <laughs> People boot easy balls all the time, so you know, all of those plays end up mattering over the course of a perfecto. But I think that there's something fundamentally different about the mistake coming at the hands of one of your teammates versus someone who is supposed to be adjudicating the contest. So yeah. I think that. I think that Galarraga is closer and a good example of an umpire saying, I made a mistake.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Like they wrote a book together, didn't they? Yes, they they
0: did. Yeah, they patched it up and in some ways maybe it worked out for both of them. (laughs) They got a book out of it and everyone remembers Armando Galarraga because he missed out. Yeah, I mean, according to like the line score and the box score, like he did allow a hit. He didn't even get the no hitter. So it seems like it's further away from perfection. But I mean, he wasn't as good in that game, I think, as Means was in this game. Like he had three strikeouts in that game. But I think, yes, because the only thing that prevented him from having the perfect game was someone who was not on his team messing up. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that if we could go back and add an asterisk, we would we would do that because mm-hmm. he threw a perfect game. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't show up anywhere. Although right. it jo- does show up in that book, so. Yep. There you go. But yeah.
0: All right. Remember when we talked about the Yankees and their slow start? This was April 20th. The Yankees were 5 and 10. They had hit quite poorly to that point. And we said, "Don't panic." We said, don't worry, Yankees fans, the Yankees will be okay. And since then, as we speak prior to the Yankees game on Wednesday, Yankees have the best record in baseball since we recorded that episode. They are (laughs) 10-4 and since that time, and they have the third-best WRC Plus in baseball since that time as well, 119. So... We were right, I suppose. <laughs> Not that it was anything brilliant to say, hey, don't overreact to 15 games. But yeah, turns out the Yankees probably pretty good. They have played as they were expected to since then. Not that we are flawless soothsayers because we were raving about how well the Dodgers were playing up to that point too. Yeah. And then suddenly the Dodgers turned into the Tigers for a couple of weeks. So <laughs> it works both ways. I guess the, the takeaway is less about Us being so perceptive and prescient than it is about a couple weeks of team performance not mattering all that much in the grand scheme of things, or at least not being all that reflective of true talent.
1: I think that that is one takeaway that one could have from this Mm -hmm. experience. And I would say that, like, that is probably the most accurate one that reflects reality. But the other uh, takeaway that we could have is that we still just don't understand the full extent of our powers. And so, Once we we know them better, we're in like the, you know, the first couple issues of like an X-Men run. I don't know (laughs) if I'm talking about that the right way, but I think that I am. Like, I I think I'm right about the X-Men part. I don't know if I'm describing how comic books work quite right, but it's fine. No one will tell me that it was wrong, so (laughs) don't worry about it. We're not going to get emails. So I think that we just don't understand our powers. And once we really have them under control, once we've gone through the training montage, then then we're going to be in good shape.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, just wanted to mention they have regressed to the mean. They have regressed to what they were supposed to be. So hopefully Yankees fans panicking a little less these days, calling for Cashman's head and Boone's head a little less these days. Not that it's going to be an easy run to the top of the AL East, but just saying things have normalized somewhat.
1: Yeah, well, and now they get to direct their ire toward the Astros. So I think that the you <laughs> yes. know there are a lot of healing moments to be had in the last couple of weeks for the Yankees fans. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. June Lee wrote uh, an article about sort of the crowd reaction to. The Astros' first visit to New York since the sign stealing scandal, and he mentioned one of the heckles that someone yelled (laughs) was targeted at Astros' third baseman, Alex Bregman, and the heckle was, You don't deserve your accolades! (laughs) (laughs) That's so...
1: that's great. I mean, like, yeah. we've talked about our own proclivity or lack thereof for booing. Um, but I think that we have said that if one is going to engage in some sort of heckling or booing, that, you know, like, you should, like, come up with stuff that is personal but not problematic. And I think that that is really nice. You don't deserve your accolades. That's mm-hmm. delightful.
0: Yeah. I mean, there were inflatable trash cans and yeah. people saying stuff about bangs, of course, too. But sure. I enjoy the very formal Full sentence heckle.
1: Yes. Be a better helper. (laughs) Have you watched, I don't remember uh, when this came out, but when the Angels played the Astros in Houston in that game where Trout got clipped on the elbow and then missed a couple of days, Mm -hmm. he was mic'd up for that game. And his mic'd up time, for some reason, I was watching something on YouTube the other day, and you know how on YouTube, like, some channels you get, like, the 30-second ad, and then when you're a certain number of seconds in, you can skip the ad, or you have to wait until it runs in completion, but it's, like, a normal TV-length ad. This was, like, the entirety of Mike Trout mic'd up as an ad in in a, like, cooking YouTube (laughs) I was watching, so it was, like, a... This is the best possible ad like experience well, that I could yeah. be having because I it's
0: an ad that's better than the video you were trying to watch probably.
1: Well, I don't know if that's true. Like I <laughs> I think that Claire's chocolate chip cookies are going to be pretty darn good, <laughs> but I will say that if I had to be diverted for anything, I'm glad it was Mike Trout. But so he was mic'd up and you know, he's mic'd up. So we should be conscious of the fact that he is conscious of the fact that we can hear him and he's probably not going to choose to like be a dick when he's Mm -hmm. mic'd up because he wants people to like him. And also he seems like a nice enough person and someone who's like not, you know, going to, like give you the business necessarily for everyone to hear, so the people watching it go like, "Oh, my trout <laughs> yeah, he doesn't strike <laughs> me as that kind, but no, I was struck in by how sort of collegial he was with all of the Astros guys while he was there and like not just yeah. you know, there are very f- actually very few guys on their active roster who were part of that sign stealing team, the banging scheme team, mm-hmm. which does make the booing kind of weird in a way because I'm sure that some of their players are like, but I wasn't that wasn't anyway. <laughs> (laughs) But, you know, he's, like, yucking it up with Correa and talking about, like, the newest thing on Call of Duty. And after he got hit and, you know, he didn't come out uh, until after he – he didn't come out immediately, like, he ran the bases. And there was a moment where he was standing on second and Correa told him that he hoped he didn't come out because he liked watching him hit. And anyway, it was, like, a nice exchange. And the reason it's relevant to this is I I was wondering if – You know, if he had been mic'd up last year, and maybe he was at some point, and I just don't remember it, but would he have had sort of the same reaction? Would he have given them more of a cold shoulder? You know, he because of the way that the divisions were aligned last year with the pandemic, like Trout played against the Astros, but like a lot of teams didn't. Right? The reason this one was so notable was that this was the first time that Houston had been back in the Bronx. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, is Mike Trout like helping us understand something about like how we process? Frustration or betrayal and like how we move on from from other people doing slights to us that we feel and experience and like they arguably the Angels slights were were minor compared to the the Yankees based on how postseason stuff has played out and I know that there are Yankee fans that feel that like Altuve robbed judge of MVP stuff and so like I, I don't mean to say that they're exactly equivalent but the Astros do see the Angels, you know, as division rivals and they have to play each other and the Astros keep the Angels out of the postseason entirely when they're good and mm-hmm. or at least they contribute to the problem. And so it was just an interesting, it was interesting. I was like, I think that um, part of what we're seeing here in a way that is predictable is like a pent up expression of frustration and betrayal and anger. And it's, I wonder what it will look like and sort of how long it will take that wave to crest before people are you know a little less boisterous and i don't i don't mean that like yankees fans shouldn't be boisterous about it you know i'm not sort of digging at them but it was just kind of curious like oh you part of it is that you have to exist in this universe in a way that's much more close and active and intimate than a fan would because you see these guys and some of these guys might end up being on your team at some point because of how free agency works and trades and what have you but was just interesting i was like oh mike Trout's a nice guy or at least he fakes it well and Mm -hmm. he's also probably had some time to like think about this and see these guys in a way that makes it a really different experience for him than it is for a fan or even you know a member of the yankees roster seeing uh the astros in a in a regular game situation at home you know it's just a different it's a different thing so anyway it's interesting
0: yeah and by Trout standards, was pretty outspoken and critical, both about the science doing scandal and I think MLB's response to it. I remember being taken aback by just how frank he was about it. And so, yeah, maybe he's over it. Time has healed some wounds. Some astros have moved on. Or maybe it's just, you know, when you're on the same field as people, it's hard to maintain that sort of stance. But yeah, yeah. He was not yelling at Alex Bragman that he doesn 't deserve his accolades, so <laughs>
1: it would be weird to do that in game, it like would. it would we would all go like that 's kind of intense, man
0: <laughs> oh boy, perfect game is trending now oh it 's brewing. I just Aww. clicked on the trending topic. The tweets are flying. Oh, my goodness. How happy is
1: Tony LaRusso right now? He's like, oh, no one's going to remember my goof.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I (laughs) wanted to mention, you know, as someone with a known stance on the DH, I'm in favor. There are two (laughs) events that I... Known (laughs) stance. I've attended meetings. (laughs) I sort of dread when one of two things happens. One of those things is like a pitcher has a good hitting performance because then everyone who hates the DH comes out of the woodwork and says, here's why we can't have the DH because you won't have this fine hitting performance by this pitcher. So that's one. And and that's people who are against me who are on the other side of the issue. Then there's the case where a pitcher gets hurt while hitting or, or running after hitting. And everyone who is in favor of the DH says, see, this is why we have to have the DH and we have to get rid of pitcher hitting. Why are we endangering pitchers? And... Both of these are like part of the argument. Like the, they are things that you could bring up. You know, I could say that, yeah, I think that would be a benefit probably of having universal DH is that we would not have pitchers getting hit or hurting themselves running the bases or in the batter's box. But that is not the primary reason. And it's, you know, not frequent that a pitcher gets hurt hitting. And so to pin it to that, to use that as a reason to say, see, see, this is why we're right. This is is why this position is correct always just seems unnecessary to me. And the same with, uh, you know, pitcher has a good game at the plate. And so therefore we have to preserve pitcher hitting. We're using isolated examples here, one-offs to say, this is why the rule should stay or go. And really I'm looking at the big picture here. I'm looking at the fact that pitchers are hitting as we speak. Now let's get the updated numbers. 110 with a... 138 on base and a 146 slugging. That's your standard negative 21 WRC plus with a 46.4 K percentage. And that is after the offensive heroics on Tuesday by Dylan Cease and Wasker Enoa. And I don't want to diminish their feats. So Dylan Cease, he had three hits in a game and That was more hits than he allowed in his six innings pitched. And that was impressive. It was particularly impressive because he hadn't hit in a game since high school. And so to go up there as an American League pitcher and record three hits, a double and two singles, he was the first AL pitcher to have a three-hit game since Jared Washburn in 2001. And he may very well be the last to have a three-hit game. And it's pretty impressive and it's cool that he did that, not having hit in a game since high school. But also, He hadn't hit in a game since high school. (laughs) This is why I am against this, or this is a, a big part of why I'm against this is that we're not asking pitchers to do this. We're not asking them to do it in the American League. Usually, we're not asking them to do it on the way to the major leagues. So, suddenly they get there and they're thrown into the fire. You know, if every other league still had pitchers hitting, that would be one thing. But now you have guys who go from like little league or high school to the big leagues. And suddenly they're taking it bats again. And yeah, that makes it more amazing that Dylan C's had three hits, but I'm guessing he's not a great hitter. He's not gonna do that again. And most pitchers are not doing that. And really it's sort of strange to ask him to do that with no training or experience. And with Inoa, like he's hit home runs and back-to-back starts. He's had Otani-esque. Pitch velocity and exit velocity combinations. I mean, he is hitting balls 107, 110 miles per hour while throwing 100 miles per hour himself. And you know, in his start on Tuesday, he hit a grand slam and he allowed only one run, unearned, and seven innings, and really impressive. And I don't know whether this is a fluke or whether he would just be a good hitter by pitcher standards. And you know, if he's a legitimately good hitter, then he can always. DH or pinch hit or whatever like Otani does I'm guessing not I'm guessing that his offensive upside is more good hitting pitcher which is still bad hitter and anyway I'm just saying like yeah if if your main argument for keeping pitcher hitting is that yes they're terrible most of the time but then when one of them does something good it's more surprising and unexpected and fun because you're not expecting it then i get why you might say see and, and this is why you have wascar you know i making the case for me here but i don't accept that argument and i also don't accept the guy gets hit by a pitcher pulls a hammy or something and so therefore that's the case my case is that pitchers are not selected for this they're not yeah. trained for this and they're across the board truly, terrible at, it, truly even, terrible at it even after those performances by cease and you know a negative 21 wrc plus so so that's it i'm saying like we can use the larger body of work here to make the argument more so than cherry picking a good offensive performance or an injury here or there
1: right i think that you know i'm not unsympathetic to the idea that baseball affording us sort of surprising delights is like part of what's incredible about the game. Sure. I am known to enjoy those. <laughs> <laughs> I'm am a known sort of cultivator and curator of those moments, but I think that they are they are just as likely to happen in ways that might be slightly more predictable, but certainly far more regular if we put bats in the hands of people who actually know how to use them and allow pitchers to just like do the pitching thing. Cause they're really good at the pitching thing.
0: Why mm-hmm. are
1: we, why are we down on them being so good on the pitching thing? Them being <laughs> so good at the pitching thing is like a problem, right? It's a mm-hmm. thing we look at in the sport and we're like, Oh, they're too good at this. Yeah. So why not just let them do that part and then let the hitters be hitters? You know, I, I, as we've talked about, there are people who have a real vested interest in pitchers hitting. And I think that some of them have, I don't agree with their rationale, but I know that it is a thing that matters to them. But as you said, in the grand scheme, they're just so, they're so bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) They're so bad at it. And the odds that you're going to see something spectacular, the reason it strikes you as spectacular is because you probably can't remember the prior instance of the guy even getting a base hit. Mm -hmm. You can't even remember. You're like, oh, this is spectacular. Why? Because he's normally really bad at this. Oh, yeah. Like, let's have him keep doing it then.
0: What? Right. What? (laughs) Yeah. The... Most persuasive argument to me, which I think is not the one that most people make, but the thing that I will miss when pitchers stop hitting is just having the basis for comparison of players who are not selected for their offensive skills and don't put much work into their offensive skills and in some cases haven't hit since high school. That enables us to see how much better the actual hitters are getting because it's it's kind of tough to tell like how much better are hitters today than hitters 20 years ago or whatever like there's some Complex statistical techniques you can try to see like you know looking at age cohorts and people coming in and out of the league but it's hard it's hard because pitchers and hitters they're always competing against each other and so hitters are getting better over time but like their stats relative to each other are not necessarily changing but because we have pitcher hitting. It gives us this sort of stable baseline, right? It's like a, a standard candle in astronomy. It's like a something that we know the magnitude of. We know that pitchers as hitters are not getting meaningfully better. They're not being recruited for their offensive skills. And so... We can compare just how much worse and worse and worse they are getting over time relative to the league average hitter. That kind of tells us in a roundabout way how much better the league average hitter is getting. So I will sort of miss having that as sort of a a yardstick, you know, a way to tell how much better baseball players are getting as pitcher hitters do not get better but that's just kind of my idiosyncratic reason for kind of liking having pitchers hit but all i'm saying is i i just i kind of dread it even when people are making the argument that i agree with which is that there should be a universal dh when it's based on one incident whether it is a, a guy getting hurt or a pitcher excelling in a certain game i'm just saying i i almost dread those things happening because i know that in my mentions, someone will be saying, see, see, this is why we have to have pitchers hit because of this game, or see, see, you're right, we need to do away with pitcher hitting because of this. And no, it's just because they're terrible at it. It's a totally different job, and we shouldn't ask them to do both of these things. So that's just my little rant.
1: Yeah, I think that you are correct, and to focus on one instance, one way or the other, you just lose the power of the totality of the stats, which just right. speak to like suck.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So...
1: Em- em- embrace the 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 like sheer weight of the statistical record and mm-hmm. make change that you want to see because I am tired of watching these guys hit. Yep. Although maybe Jacob de Graham is like, please let me keep it. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> please. So speaking of rules, I don't care for. I wanted to read this email from listener Noah E in Cambridge, Mass, who writes, "Ben, you're going to hate this, and I'm oh, extremely no. sorry, but <laughs> I had a." Very misguided, he says, thought on how to reduce the extent of three true outcome plate appearances and bring back the small ball we all, question mark, love so much, put a runner on second at the beginning of every inning. In the around half season, we've now seen in total with zombie runners, it sure seems like there are a lot more sacrifices to bring the undead home, hitters swinging for singles rather than dingers, and general base path excitement. This is all to be expected because it's a lot easier to get base path excitement when there are people from both teams out there. Every great story has conflict, etc. But do you think this is just because it's extra innings and we'd see this anyway, or might it be possible to bring the enjoyable chaos into more of the random number generator we call baseball? e.g. the earlier innings. I hate the zombie runner rule as much as the next guy, but if MLB is going to go for it, why not go all in? In fact, if they really meant it, they would put a zombie runner on second every time the bases were empty. Hit a homer, great, you're on second now. Sackfly fly scores the zombie from third. You know where to go. Line out into a double play to start an inning. Second base is where to go to live out your shame of getting more outs as the first batter of the game than ever possible before. Would love to hear your thoughts on just how unwatchable this new product would be. So Sam and I talked on an episode last year about this, about the idea of well, why not just do this every inning? Because Sam was in favor of the zombie runner rule and one of the critiques that came up was like well if it's so great then why don't we just play every inning this way and i think sam pointed out some fallacies there and was not in favor of having it in every inning even though he liked it in the extra inning and obviously i am not in favor of it in any inning but i just wanted to mention this to nip this in the bud as a potential argument in favor of the zombie runner rule The idea that it leads to less three true outcome baseball, because if that were the case, then people could say, well, at least the silver lining of the zombie runner rule is that it is putting more balls in play and leading to fewer strikeouts and so on. And that is not the case, as it turns out, despite Noah's anecdotal observations here. I was just looking at the Fangraph's splits leaderboard, and I looked at the MLB rates for extra innings only. Thus far, this season, and granted it's only 449 plate appearances in extra innings entering Wednesday, but... The percentage of plate appearances that have ended in a walk, strikeout, or home run in extra innings this season is 42.8, percent compared to 36.4% for all innings, including extra innings. So it turns out that thus far this year, the TTO rate is actually significantly higher in extras, and a lot of it is an elevated walk rate, which comes from more intentional walks. Those situations create incentives to put people on base, but it's not just the extra walks. The strikeout rate is also higher in extra innings. Could be small sample, could just be better pitchers. That might have something to do with it. You know, you have Liam Hendricks out there to try to preserve the tie. So it might be that, that you're saving your closer for extras or whatever, but for whatever reason, it hasn't actually been the case that balls have been put in play more often in extras. It's actually been the opposite. So I'm just trying to turn what could be an argument in favor of the zombie runner rule into an argument against. And I will also mention that, yes, base path madness can be fun, but bunting for hits is one thing. Sack bunts are everything. Sack bunts are boring. Bunting for hits are fun. We should always draw that distinction and not conflate the kinds of bunts.
1: I was asked in my chat today if any strikeout should automatically erase every base runner. Oh. So, for example, if you had two on and no out and were like worried about a double play, but a strikeout actually would function like a triple play and just reset the inning. And <laughs> the questioner said that's an in- instant incentive to put the ball in play and it's like, well, there's an incentive there but the ability to execute on that incentive isn't a given so I think you just designed like a 30-minute baseball
0: game. <laughs> yeah, probably, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I, I think that the stance that we should take, because remember, I've been converted to your your position, and by converted, I mean I've been inspired to care about it. Whereas before, I didn't feel very strongly about it one way or the other. I mean, I wanted you to be happy, but like, I didn't mm-hmm. feel very like passionate about the yeah. the zombie runner rule. But now, I think it's bad. So I think that the the way that we should collectively decide to talk about this is to say that like this is a pandemic aberration, right? It is. It was presented and introduced and justified and passed in the interest of keeping games shorter both so that we weren't taxing pitching arms that you know haven't had their usual ramp up and also to not have guys like in close contact as much because we're worried about a pandemic after all. And so we should not talk about this as if it is an eventuality right this is something that we we adopted in like an emergency capacity like requiring factories to produce uh, ventilators right it is mm-hmm. it is a wartime effort but soon, hopefully the pandemic will be over and the justification for this will be gone and then we can return to normal baseball because we all know that it is actually a, a rather small percentage of games that goes to extras and goes really deep into extras mm-hmm. and so we should like don't we should not grant the premise of the question that this is a thing we have to deal with it's like no this will go away and so don't bring it into the to regulation play because mm-hmm. it soon will be gone from extra innings play. I reject the idea that this is a <laughs> permanent change. We say no.
0: Yes, yes. Let's not accept that once applied, it must be permanent. And I did just check, by the way, last season as well. And it was also the case that extra innings last season had a higher three true outcomes percentage 38.5 <sighs> compared to, I think, 36.1 for all innings so it was the case in a a larger sample last year as well
1: right and see and none of those cases did a pitcher have to (laughs) it's very embarrassing
0: yeah like
1: i make mistakes at work we all make mistakes at work we are none of us perfect we are Mm -hmm. fallible by nature but i haven't made that mistake
0: (laughs) yeah so that's something (laughs) yeah i guess you haven't been called upon to make that decision either but if you were, I'm confident that you would know the rules because you read the rule rulebook without being a major league manager. I so. do do that. <laughs> yeah, it makes
1: me really fun at parties. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One more email here from Miranda, also on the subject of Manfred Ball. She says, So I was discussing the seven-inning no-hitter concept with a friend. A question came out of it. Why do some people appear to have higher standards of realness for a no-hitter than for a baseball game itself? If we're not counting a seven inning no hitter as a real no hitter, then by extension, why are we counting a planned seven inning game as a real game? Both teams lose the same number of offensive chances and so on, so within those constraints it's level, but is it equal? For game outcome it is. Seven innings hold the same weight as nine innings since it's the same W or L, not a percentage of a win. But those seven innings are not equal to nine innings for a pitcher's performance, and yes, I realize a no-hitter is much harder through nine innings. It's just that people seem outraged lately about the seven-inning no-hitter issue, but less mad about seven-inning games themselves and their integrity and if they're real. Thoughts.
1: I think that this is a terrific point. I think it was one of the one of the arguments in favor of it being perhaps a qualified no-hitter, one that came with a seven-inning designation next to it. But this was one of the things that we considered when we were talking about it. It's like we we grant these to be games that count, right? We would We would say that a guy had thrown a shutout. He would Mm -hmm. have a shutout in his stat line if he had done that. We count all the other stats from it, so it seems strange that we draw a line at this achievement. What did they they say it was? A distinguished accomplishment or... Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great question. I mean, the justification for this is also sort of pandemic related, um, because there was a concern about not being able to make up games if there were a lot of cancellations, and they want to get guys out of there. Yada yada. yada. But yeah, I, I think that I think that you're right. I think that you should mm-hmm. you should take to the streets. Yeah. Preach your truth because your truth is right. If, yeah. I mean, I I still think that it is important again to have that like little parenthetical that says seven innings because we're just really bad at remembering stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we're really bad at remembering things and I wouldn't want some intrepid researcher like 15 years from now, who was perhaps a very young person when this was all going on and didn't remember like the ins and outs of of Bumgarner's no-hitter, to think that, oh, this was exactly the same as the other things. And then they would write an article on Fangrass.com, and someone in the comments would be like, well, you gotta add a caveat to this thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And they'd be like, hey, Meg, why didn't you tell me that? And I'd be like, because I don't remember anything, man. Like, it was a hard <laughs> year. So yeah. I think that it's important to have something there that distinguishes it from other no-hitters, because it is a different kind of accomplishment, but I think it is still an accomplishment within the confines of regulation play, and so we should acknowledge it as such. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think
0: about that. I do see the argument for drawing a distinction between a seven-inning game and a seven-inning no-hitter because one is an individual accomplishment and one is a team accomplishment, and When you're talking about the game, if you all agree that it's going to be seven innings going in and you both have the same chance to win that game or lose that game, like it maybe hurts the better team because you're more likely to get an upset if you play fewer innings. But I think it's maybe a little different than just an individual accomplishment like a no-hitter, which is significantly easier and really has a, a different meaning in seven innings than it does in nine. Yes, It's far harder to have a no-hitter through nine innings, and if that is what we historically have understood a no-hitter to be, then it really colors your perception of that accomplishment. Whereas a game, we just accept, well, a game is one team plays the other, and one team scores more runs than the other team, and that is still the case in a seven-inning game. And I guess you could say that a no-hitter is just a start where a pitcher pitches a complete game and doesn't give up any hits, and that's still true in a seven-inning game. But it does really change the nature of the accomplishment sure. in a way that maybe a seven-inning game, little as I like it, doesn't change the nature of a win quite to the same degree. So I guess that would be one argument for drawing some distinction there. But I will say that I am an opponent of the seven inning games. And, and we got another email from a Patreon supporter Jody, who wrote in to say the following is in response to MLB playing seven inning split double headers and charging full price for both games. And Jody continues, earlier today, I went to my local donut shop and ordered a dozen donuts. After paying for them, I opened the box and saw that there were only nine donuts in the box along with a note. The note was on Camping World Stationery and appeared to be from Rob Manfred. It said, thank you for purchasing donuts from us. I realize that you're receiving over 22% fewer donuts than you paid for, but then's the breaks. You see, even though our donut shop employees won't be at the store any longer, if they gave you the full 12 donuts that you paid for, I'm going to tell the public that you're getting less than the full amount because of checks, notes, health and safety protocols. Listen, I realize that argument is completely ridiculous. It's just (laughs) that the owners and I are confident that most fans won't complain enough about buying a ticket for a nine inning game. And then thanks to a different game getting rained out, ultimately getting 22.22% less baseball than you paid for. Believe me, this time next spring, you'll think getting 22.22% less baseball isn't that big of a deal when you'll be getting 100% less baseball while we try yet again to break the players' union. Signed, Rob Manfred, presented by Doosan. (laughs) Seriously, I feel like if we fans don't complain very loudly about this, MLB will continue getting away with giving us less baseball for the same price. It's an outrage. And I guess it depends whether you go by time of game or innings in the game or action in the game. (laughs) You might get different answers, but it's true. People are paying full price for seven inning games that they expected to be nine. (sighs)
1: Okay. Well, sure that's a bummer. I won't <laughs> deny that that's a bummer. I have a hard time getting worked up about that particular bummer. Yeah, and I'm ex- <laughs> I'm like examining my soul to say, "Why Meg, you get agitated about all kinds of stuff. So, why is this not clearing the bar and I don't know that I have a satisfactory <laughs> answer to that. I think you should go to a different donut shop." Yes. I think that the Metaphor is perhaps a touch strained. <laughs> I think that I wish donuts didn't give me heartburn quite as often as they regularly do. What's that about with donuts and heartburn? I don't have a good explanation for that, but I like no, get a I get a little not bit not a
0: heartburn sufferer. I'm lucky in that respect.
1: But. I I normally am not either, but I get a little good with the donuts, and I like them <laughs> so much. But then I'm like. Ugh. <laughs> I think that the the takeaway from this though is that yes, you should express your displeasure. Uh, when we uh, talked about the the reason we should care about the S- Super League, was it Super League? Mm-hmm. Was because it, it demonstrated the power of fans to sort of shape the the future of the game in a way that is positive or at least expresses a fan preference Mm -hmm. in a way that we tend to not be able to muster here in the States. I will say that we have been introduced with a countervailing force, which is the potential profitability of gambling, so maybe you will get as many donuts as you want, but you will have to make prop bets on their size. I'm going to resist knowing more about this until I absolutely have (laughs) I know it makes people mad, but I'm going to keep doing it because I can only live so long and there are only so many hours in the day and I have all these books I haven't read and I keep buying them even though they're unread. And so I got to read these books and then I will learn about gambling. There's so many people who are so frustrated right now And I'm really sorry And I sound like I'm delighting in your frustration And I swear <laughs> that only 10% of me is
0: <laughs> Anyway There are many reasons to be aggrieved about the 7-inning games Like imagine sure. if you're the Twins If you're the Minnesota Twins And you're 0-10 in Manfred Ball games Either 7-inning games or extra-inning zombie runner rule games And 11-7 and in 9-inning games Yeah Imagine how you're feeling about that Right and,
1: It's not that they were
0: at a disadvantage in the Manfred ball games relative to the other teams, really, but if you figure that they're generally the better team in the typical matchup as they were projected to be entering the season, then shortening those games makes it easier for them to be upset and No, they should probably not be going 0-10 in those games, even so. (laughs) But still, if you had that sort of disparity and you look at where you are in the standings and your overall record and you say, well, if baseball were just nine inning games as it was for so long, then maybe we would be doing a little bit better than we are.
1: Or like mostly though that there's just there is an inherent unpredictability to going to a game in person and we accept it in a lot of cases and i appreciate how this feels different right because it is an imposed it is a a difference of experience that is imposed not by God, or nature, (laughs) but by Rob Manfred. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you'll defer to rain, but you don't want to defer to Rob. So I (laughs) I get that, right? Because I'm sure that it feels very different to you as a paying customer of like the Yankees. If you, let's say you buy a ticket to a game and you purchase that ticket with the understanding that Garrett Cole is gonna pitch. And you're like, ah, Garrett Cole, I love Mm -hmm. Garrett Cole. And then the game gets rained out. And then the next time you go, a less good starter starts. Mm-hmm. I need a different team because some of the, you know, a lot of the Yankee starters have actually been pretty good. You're a fan of the Baltimore Orioles and you bought a ticket and you're like, I'm gonna see John Means pitch and you're like, Yeah, John Means. And then the game gets rained out and you get comped to go to a different game, but then in that game, their fifth starter is going. I don't even know who their fifth starter is. Ben. <laughs> And so you're like, well, this is a dramatically different experience. Yeah. I'm seeing a much less good guy go or or maybe it's not even a less good guy maybe you just want to see your guy you have that guy who you're super excited about and now you don't get to see him because by the time they can make up the game someone else is up in the rotation and it's just that's just the way the cookie crumbles but you sit there and you're like that's not John Means fault and it's not even the Baltimore Orioles fault it's the rain's fault and who can be mad at the rain it just exists it's not an entity it doesn't have you know conviction or purpose or even malice. it just exists as rain, and that does feel very different to you than thinking you're gonna get nine innings of Garrett Cole, and maybe you get maybe you still get to see Garrett Cole, but you only get seven innings of him, and you're like, "Well, I feel a little bit cheated, and so I understand how that's different, but I think that mostly it's gonna be okay. <laughs> And we should express that we don't like this, and again, we should not take it as a given that it is going to persist into future seasons when we are hopefully much further removed from the pandemic, but I think it's okay. I think Mm -hmm. it's okay. Like, just imagine that what you're really missing is the two innings you would have spent in line for a less good beer than you deserve because you're going to a Yankees game, and there is no good beer to be had. Right. It's like that.
0: All right. Shall we close by meeting a major leaguer? Sure. Meet a major leaguer. I am very eager to meet this nascent major leaguer. It's the thrilling debut of somebody new.
1: Let's meet this mysterious major leaguer.
0: All right. So our new segment, we introduce a major leaguer who has recently made his major league debut, but may not have made it to your newsfeed. So do you want to begin today?
1: Sure. So this player was suggested to us by a number of different uh, listeners. So thank you. All for mm-hmm. raising him to our attention. This is Jose Rojas, who is a player for the Los Angeles Angels. He is a third baseman and an outfielder. He is a, a hometown guy, which is part of the reason that his story has been so meaningful to people there. He went to he went to literally Anaheim High School in yeah. Anaheim, California. So he's not even just a hometown guy, meaning that he's like from LA or from Orange County. He's from Anaheim. And he mm-hmm. was drafted by the Angels in the 36th round of the 2016 draft and he kind of bounced around as a as a college player he went to fullerton college and then transferred to vanguard university in costa mesa so he's been a california guy for his entire career basically his amateur career as well as his pro career and he you know didn't play last year as no one did because of the pandemic and he got his shot this year he has had you know not the best uh, time in the major so far. He's had 47 plate appearances. He has a 47 WRC plus. He has just seven hits among them, but he has seven hits and he's a hometown guy. And his story is really inspiring. There's a great uh, Los Angeles Times piece that we will link to that I, it has too many like, movie highlight moments to really give uh do justice to all of them. So we'll be sure to link to it here. This is from Jack Harris. But he, you know, he is the son of immigrants. He has had a number of instances in his life where like he couldn't play the showcase circuit really because it was expensive. And his younger brother had lymphoma and he has just been tested and tried throughout his his young life and his young career and and now is getting a, a big league opportunity and it's really exciting. So I guess when he he made his debut it was against Liam Hendricks it did mm-hmm. not go well he struck out but his family was there and they were all crying and he had former coaches watching on TV and you know he has been chasing this moment for a really long time like I said he was drafted in 2016 he's 28 years old mm-hmm. this is sort of you know, he's the kind of guy where if you call him sort of an org player, you you might not be totally out of line. But, you know, he made the team and is getting his opportunity mostly because of injury. And I don't imagine that he'll necessarily stay up with L.A. for all that long. But here he is. So, yep. yeah.
0: Yeah, he has played several positions. He's played... First base, second base, yep. third base, left field, <laughs> right field. Yeah, he's been all over the place trying yeah. to help out that porous Angels defense that we talked about last time.
1: Yeah, still porous, but you know, it's always nice when a guy, a local guy gets an opportunity. I think that every fan base probably has their local guys, and the the, the spectrum of quality that those players exhibit over time is widely variable, like wildly <laughs> variable. Yeah. But they always mean something. So yeah.
0: The 1,086th player drafted in the 2016 draft. (laughs) Yeah. It's a long, long time to wait to hear your name called.
1: I don't think that we, we don't talk enough and we talk about it a great deal, but I still think that we could probably talk more about just what an achievement it is to make it to the major leagues at all. And that's sort of the premise of this entire series, (laughs) right? But even within the context of this series, it's like for a guy taken in the third round, it's a big deal. It's like any prospect who sees major league time is an accomplishment, not just for him, but for, you know, for the scout who saw him and persuaded the org to take him and for all of his coaches along the way. And so, I don't know, we've had had rule five guys, we've had former first rounders whose careers haven't quite panned out, but to go in the 36th round, like this round of the draft is probably never going to exist again, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And so for, for him to succeed the way he has is really exciting. And so we tip our caps to Jose.
0: All right. So now we know Jose Rojas and my major leaguer to meet today is Alec Bettinger. And Alec Bettinger is kind of the opposite story of Kent Emanuel, my meet a major leaguer last time. So Emanuel had that great historic Relief appearance where he pitched eight and two-thirds innings in his major league debut out of the bullpen And he's had a couple scoreless appearances since then, so that's nice But things did not go as well for Alec Bettinger in his major league debut In fact, they went about as poorly as they could, but he still became a major leaker on Sunday So we've talked about how the Dodgers have been in a rough patch lately but Sunday was the exception. Sunday they beat up on Alec Bettinger and the Brewers 16-4. to And so Bettinger had never pitched professionally above double A, and he was called up to make this spot start. Perhaps we'll see. I think he's still on the roster. Don't know if he'll make another, but he is with the Brewers and they were in the middle of a stretch where I think they had 17 games without an off day. And a few guys were on the IL, Brett Anderson and Zach Godley and Corbin Burns. And so they called up Alec Bettinger, who is MLB.com's 23rd ranked Brewers prospect. He was Eric Langenhagen's 14th ranked Brewers prospect last June. Here's what Eric wrote about him then. A senior sign reliever coming out of Virginia, Bettinger experienced a velo bump in his second pro season and also developed better movement separation between his curveball and slider, which has enabled both of them to play better he still only sits 89 to 92 but he gets way way down the mound and generates about seven feet of extension causing his heater to jump on hitters and create flatter approach angle his fastball is also spin efficient and has plus vertical movement he's gone from elder org filler to back of the rotation prospect in half a season he is not a blue chipper or anything he was a 10th round pick by the brewers in the 2017 draft He is 25 years old, turns 26 in July, 6'2", 210, right-handed pitcher. And so he's facing the Dodgers in this difficult assignment where it's just like, hey, we need some innings. Just, you know, go get some outs and last as long as you can. And he's facing maybe the, the best lineup in baseball, certainly the best team in baseball, even if it hasn't been playing that well lately. And he gave up 11 runs. And, you know, that's not the way that he would have wanted to debut. He made it through four innings, 11 runs on 11 hits. Two walks, no strikeouts, just just not the line that you want. And this was an item in the Baseball Prospectus box score banter the other day, and it was talking about how you don't see that many starts like this anymore where the pitcher really just has to wear it. Patrick Dubuque wrote about this and Really, there are only a a few instances over the past decade where someone went four-plus innings and gave up 11 or more earned runs in a start. Bettinger did it for the first time since Jeff Locke in June of 2016. Before that, it was John Lester in 2012. And you just don't see this anymore because guys just don't get left out there to give up run after run and hit after hit like that, pitch counts being what they are. But in this case, it happened and he hung on and he is the second pitcher in MLB history to give up 11 earned runs in his debut following Arnie Munoz of the 2004 White Sox. And that was the only game that Arnie Munoz ever started in the major leagues, (laughs) which I hope will not be the case for Alec Bettinger. Munoz did go on to make some more relief appearances, but that start went so poorly that he just never got another one. And I was not watching this game, but according to Patrick's description, like it could have gone so much better. This was really a game of inches situation. So Patrick writes, infamy seized Bettinger by a literal inch. After loading the bases with two outs, Matt Beatty rolled a dribbler under the pitcher's glove on the right side. First baseman Keston Hura barehanded the ball and underhanded it to first in time, but Bettinger, having diverted his path to field the ball, put his foot down just off the bag. The next batter, A.J. Pollock, delivered a 1-1 pitch over the center field wall. So he gave up a grand slam there. And then in the next inning, Patrick writes, Beatty continued to thwart baseball's sense of justice by hitting another grand slam an inch over Avisel Garcia's outstretched glove in right. It was a nightmare. And like all nightmares, once the next day begins, it'll all be forgotten except by Bettinger himself. So it could have turned out much differently if uh, Bettinger had been an inch in the other direction, or if that ball had been an inch lower or shorter, then maybe he would not have given up those two grand slams and he would have had a better day. But. He did make the major leagues. He is a major leaguer, and congrats to him, and I hope he gets more opportunities. And he said, I've been punched in the mouth plenty of times in this game. This game is going to humble you many, many times. Anybody who's played it for as long as we have here knows that. I'm just going to keep pushing forward. That's all I can do at this point. So, rough and that home run the the grand slam had an expected batting average of 30.030 030. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> yeah so it's tough it's it's tough and and adam mccalvey had some unfun facts about this bettinger set the brewers record for runs and earned runs allowed in a major league debut the dodgers 11 hits off bettinger were one shy of the brewers record for a pitcher making his major league debut Bettinger became the first pitcher in the modern era since 1900 to allow multiple grand slams in his major league debut. He's the 14th pitcher to allow multiple slams in a game, etc, etc. So his takeaway from the debut, he said, is the fact that I competed. I mean, they beat me. They kicked my butt. I've got to be better. But I mean, I competed with what I had today and left it all out there. That's the big takeaway from today. So... His cliche game is major league quality and hopefully his actual game will be at some point in the future. I just I hope this is not a one and done situation where he gets sent down when other guys get healthy and he just has to live with this line. Like hopefully either he'll get another set now or he'll be back at some point in the future. Just, you know, not a dignified debut, but hey, he made it is on the board so that's something that's more than we can say
1: it sure is more than we can say but yeah mm-hmm. I hope he gets another go around if only to bring it yeah just bring it down slightly just yeah Like a little bit
0: yeah it wouldn't be hard to bring it down from no. 4.75 <laughs> which is where it is right now
1: well and then you can say like even if it's a mediocre kind of go you can say well like that was a bad you know I was nervous that was my first time out but this was okay you know then you can yeah. point to one and be like yeah I had a decent guy
0: Mm -hmm. So inspired by Bettinger, I just wanted to read this quick piece in the Milwaukee record, which is uh – Just about an even worse debut in Milwaukee Major League history. So uh, I will read here this piece from Tyler Moss, who says, As unsavory as Sunday's performance was, it actually wasn't the worst debut in the history of Milwaukee professional baseball. If you ask us, (laughs) that unflattering distinction goes to Alfred Alamazoo Jennings, an unqualified catcher whose entire career consisted of just one game he never should have been asked to play. The year was 1878. The Milwaukee Grays were in Cincinnati near the tail end of the franchise's one and only National League season to play a series against the Reds. With the team's three catchers hurt, Grays manager Jack Chapman took an unconventional approach to finding a backstop for the August 15th game. According to then-Cincinnati Enquirer sports writer O.P. Kaler, Chapman asked Jennings, a 27-year-old amateur player who was managing a baseball club in Delaware, Ohio at the time, to join the team simply because he, quote, looked so large and handsome, so very like a catcher. Oh, oh my god, <laughs> he
1: had the good face. Yeah,
0: he had the good body, I guess. I, I wow. don't think Catchers as being like notably large and handsome compared to other players, but yeah, he had the good face. He had the good everything. The deal was even sealed with Chapman buying Jennings dinner. The following afternoon, Weird Jennings enough. was behind the plate as the starting catcher for a professional baseball team based in a city he neither lived in nor had any connection to simply because he kind of looked like he could be a passable player. He was not a passable player. <laughs> Over the course of that game, hard-throwing Gray's pitcher Mike Golden and Jennings combined for a total of ten passed balls on the official scorecard. Though Jennings later claimed it was actually seventeen, the makeshift battery repeatedly got their sides crossed up, resulting in one of Golden's pitchers breaking two of Jennings's fingers. I signed for an out curve and got an in shoot, which broke a couple of fingers. Jennings later said oh in an my interview. God. Go ahead, I said. I'll stay here all day, even if I have to stop them with my elbows. You can't drive me away. (laughs) The woes of the abysmal big league debut weren't just limited to Jennings' defense. In his 3 plate appearances, he went 0-2, for though he did reach base once on a walk. The Grays lost 13-2 and root to a 15-45 record in the team's one-and-only big league season, and Jennings was never asked to play another game. He ended his one-game career with a war of negative .2. While his Major League service time was almost as brief as it can possibly get, his terrible showing made Jennings something of a legend. In an article about that fateful August 15th contest, Kaler gave the catcher, who Milwaukee literally pulled off the street, the nickname Alamazoo, and criticized his putrid performance. When Al pulled on his sole leather gloves and poised near the grandstand at 3 o'clock, the crowd scarcely breathed, zip came the ball from Golden's hand, Bang, it went against the backstop because Al had stooped too late to pick it up. It took several minutes for him to gauge the speed of Golden's pitching, but he got it down fine at last and stopped a ball every once in a while. <laughs> but the low comedy parts came in when the new catcher went up close behind the bat. A batter had, but to get on first base and a run was scored. They went to second and third without danger and tallied on a passed ball. So it turns out that Alamazoo had an okay life, at least uh In the immediate aftermath of that, he became an umpire. He later became a Cincinnati police officer before finding success as the parched corn king of America with a profitable business and lots of friends, both in and outside of baseball. Unfortunately, he died in 1894 at only 43 years Hmm. due to complications from surgery. But now we know what would happen if someone was uh, pulled on to catch a major league game just because he kind of looked like a catcher.
1: (laughs) Did you say the parched corn king?
0: Yes, the parched corn king Mm -hmm. (laughs) of America. I guess I don't know dried corn I guess
1: dried corn yeah I, I guess it just goes to show that like your your expectations of your life must be different if you're like notably handsome yeah or, like no I'm gonna live a different life than a lot of people because I'm like mm-hmm. I'm I'm noticeably handsome I'm handsome enough that even though my face is going to be obscured by a catcher's <laughs> mask it is thought to be like you know sufficient for employment yeah they well, that in his had size. masks in
0: 1878, so maybe yeah, his geez, face was, right. was on display. <laughs> More <laughs> but, visible. But yeah, I'm sure physical appearance still plays a role in where players get drafted and, and whether they get opportunities, but probably not quite so clear a role as it was in the case of Alamazoo Jennings in 1878, a little less rigorous when it came to talent evaluation. <laughs> so Yeah, and they don't even <laughs> have
1: parched corn to fall back on now, so yeah. it's really... So, sketchy
0: alec bettinger maybe you did a little bit better than that (laughs) all right on that note we can end here Well, I just watched Jose Rojas record his first two hits at home. Congrats to him. Of course, I was not watching the Angels primarily for Jose Rojas. I was watching for Shohei Ohtani, who was pitching and not hitting this time because of the Angels' short bench. And Ohtani was a lot of fun to watch. He went five-plus innings, one hit, six walks, seven strikeouts against the Rays. Of course, the Angels lost the game after Ohtani was pulled. They were winning 1-0 when he left. No blister issues for him, so that's good news. The same shaky command which came and went, but didn't hurt him because he was basically unhittable and he kept conjuring strikeouts to get out of jams. If he could just get the command down, get some more first pitch strikes, get ahead of guys, and then deploy those unhittable breaking balls, that would be a sight to see, and I hope we will see that sight sometime soon. But despite that shakiness, I saw this tweet after the game by Brent McGuire. As a hitter, Shohei Otani has a better WRC+, 161, than Jose Ramirez, and more home runs, 9, than Mike Trout. As a pitcher, he has a lower ERA 2.41 than Max Scherzer and a higher K rate 35.7 percent than Trevor Bauer as a runner he has more stolen bases six than Byron Buxton and hey even if it's just looking for the most impressive names and cherry-picking stats pretty fun I should also mention that the Yankees won again scored a solid six runs against the Astros Giancarlo Stanton continued his latest incredible run and I will end with one more email from Patreon supporter Adam who writes if you're not entirely fed up with getting descriptions of how other other sports handle replay. I think rugby is an interesting comparison that's essentially the exact opposite of baseball. In every televised game, the ref is mic'd up and the sound is played live with the broadcast. The way the players and ref are expected to talk is similar to how a child in trouble at school talks with the principal. Replay is used a lot, called the television match official or TMO, and the angles used to make the call are played on the jumbotron while the ref and TMO talk it out for all to hear. On tough calls, there is no call on the field, they just go to replay. The gesture to defer to someone else on the call is not as cool as covering your eyes in volleyball. They make a big square with their hands to represent the TV. Curious which, if any, of these you think would be an improvement for baseball. I think probably both, but certainly the former. We talked about this with cricket too. I would love to see some transparency and to actually see and hear the conversation that is going on between the ump on the field and the replay ump and to watch what they're watching. I think that would be a big improvement. And I like the TV gesture too. So thanks to those of you who follow other sports that we may not pay as close attention too for filling us in you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks joel watts will hickman carol o robert milholland and bennett aiken thanks to all of you you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at, podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are already a supporter. Don't feel obligated to email us about the drop third strike rule. Just saying, not clamoring for more messages on that. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then. Successful conversation Will take you
1: very far There is no re-